0: Welcome to today's episode of Thoughts. I'm Callum. And I'm Laura.
1: And in this episode, we speak to Michael Ridge, who's a professor in moral philosophy at the University of Edinburgh.
0: We talk about how play links to human nature, the difference in play between humans and animals, and whether play can be considered a moral virtue.
1: So here are some thoughts on the philosophy of play. Hi everyone, we're here with Michael Rich. Would you be okay to just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your work in philosophy up to this point?
2: Hi, sure, yeah, so I'm a professor of moral philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, I should also say thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, So I started working on the philosophy of play and the philosophy of games about, I don't know, six years ago now. Previously I worked mainly in metaethics, so that's a branch of moral philosophy. But, uh, you know, I love games and I love philosophy. So, you know, it's nice to bring those passions together. And uh, my wife got me this book uh, by Bernard Suits, The Grasshopper, which is a wonderful book in the philosophy of games. It's kind of a really canonical work in that area. And I really just fell in love with it and the kind of questions that it asked. And I built a course around that. And then as I taught the course, I got a bunch of ideas for papers I wanted to write. And it slowly developed into a kind of new research interest. So that's kind of what's brought me to this area. It's still kind of fresh to me. Uh, I mean, six years is a long time, I guess, but it's compared to the other stuff I did before, it's still kind of new and exciting, so that's nice. And I'm on research leave this year, uh, on a Hume doing, uh, I'm actually, I agreed to write a book, but I'm trying to write two books now. Um, but they both draw on the idea of play and playfulness. One's mainly about the value of playfulness. And the other one is about meaning in life and how playfulness relates to that in an interesting way.
1: Is there stuff about play that you find interesting? Has it gotten a good reception from your students when you've been teaching the courses?
2: It's been a great class to teach. I mean, the students really get into it. I think there are a lot of reasons it's fun to teach. The Grasshopper is written, that's the main text I mentioned before by Bernard Suits, is written as kind of a a dialogue in the style of the Socratic dialogues. And so it has a lot lot of nice literary qualities. Uh, You know, it's very engaging, certainly not dry. He has a sense of humor. Uh, You know, there's a lot of laugh out loud moments in the text. And it's nice to be able to include some extracurricular activities. So I, I take my students to a games cafe after class, or at least I have in the past. This coming year, I'm gonna be teaching a larger class that probably won't be feasible. So we do a little, you know, field research, playing games each week, and then bring that back into the class discussion, which I think also helps just kind of create a sense of community. And uh, yeah, my impression is that the students really enjoy it. The other thing is because it's kind of fresh to me, it's not something that I've been studying. And that also philosophers have written about, you know, Add and find it, it has this kind of freshness about it. So it's it's more like I'm having a conversation with equals with my students instead of me sort of, you know, telling them what the right well, not what the right views are, but kind of um, Kind of what the, the standard views are drawing distinctions and just trying, you know, it's, it's a little bit more somehow egalitarian. So I think that produces a nice classroom dynamic and I think people find it more kind of engaging. So yeah, it's been a blast to teach.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And what philosophical attention has been directed towards play before? Or is this, is this a relatively new area of research? So there
2: has been uh, some work on the philosophy of play previously, of course. It hasn't been anything like a core area, uh, which I think is a shame because I think there are a lot of reasons that play in particular is philosophically interesting. I mean, philosophy traditionally studies human nature, right? So think about Plato on the kind of tripartite division of the soul between reason, spirit and appetite or David Hume versus Immanuel Kant with Hume saying that morality is down to sentiment and feeling, whereas Kant emphasized a rational nature as part of human nature is essential to morality or, um, you know, uh, Nietzsche on the will to power is a kind of essential part of human nature or Thomas Hobbes kind of on psychological egoism. Um, so that, you know, insofar as philosophy kind of, meant to study human nature it seems like it should be more of a focus than it has been because i think play is definitely a really core feature of human nature and something like our rationality and our ability to use language that distinguishes us from other animals i mean obviously other animals play but i don't think any other species as as playful as us we play throughout our life cycle and the forms of play that we engage in are incredibly varied and rich Uh, so i think it really should be a pretty core topic Uh, it's also It's not only a deep part of human nature, it's plausibly kind of essential to a a life well lived and philosophy typically studies well-being and, you know, what makes for the good life. And so, you know, if you think of a life, particularly childhood, but I think throughout life with no play, I think it seems very drab and depressing and filled with drudgery. Um, And those two facts are related. The fact that it's a deep part of human nature and also that it's kind of an important part of our well-being uh on an aristotelian view anyway we should understand what it is to lead a good life to flourish or to you know to have what the aristotelians would call Uh is it's understood in terms of fulfilling your nature and so insofar as being playful is an essential part of our nature it would make sense within that aristotelian framework to think of play as being really important to having a good life and i i've been developing the idea that playfulness is even a moral virtue so there are all these different ways in which it matters to philosophy. So but I haven't really answered your question. So, I mean, in terms of people who have uh, discussed uh, play historically, so Kant famously held that we should understand beauty in terms of the free play of the imagination. So that's one uh, historic figure who talked uh, a fair bit about play. And that's in relation to aesthetics. Then Schopenhauer, gave a definition of play, he understood it as the discharge of excess energy, which to me makes me think of kind of toddlers who need to get some of their, their, their nastiness out by running around and acting crazy or golden retrievers. So, um, but Bernard Suits, who I'd mentioned before, he, in addition to working on games, worked on play. He's kind of a big figure in this area. And so he took Schopenhauer's definition and tried to develop it more sharply. So Suits pointed out that when you say play is the discharge of excess energy, it's kind of natural to say, excess to what? Uh, And he suggested it should be surplus to your instrumental needs. So the idea is you've got these resources which might be devoted to various instrumental needs. And, you know, so like making sure you've got food on the table and shelter and so on. And and to achieve those instrumental needs, you have to engage in work. Uh, But play is when we reallocate resources uh, that are normally dedicated to that to something that we do for its own sake, what he calls autotelic activity. And that picks up on this idea that when you play, you're not doing it as a means to some Kind of mundane prosaic instrumental end as you do with your work but it's something that you do for its for its own sake uh, some people talk about play being inside a kind of magic circle that's separate from the quote unquote real world so that was kind of suits his theory he gives a lot of nice rich examples so he talks about like a, a child playing with his mashed potatoes right the mashed potatoes would normally be there for purely instrumental reasons to make sure that you're fed that you have nutrition, but he reallocates those instrumental uh, resources to something that he does just for its own sake, just to enjoy playing with the mashed potatoes. Schiller uh, also is another historic figure who talked about play. He colorfully said, we're only fully human when we play. He had this kind of view that's kind of understands human nature as involving a deep conflict between our rational nature and our sensuous nature. And he thought that what he called the play drive is essential to kind of bringing those conflicting parts of our nature into harmony. And for him, that's a big part of that is that the play drive involves a kind of willingness to abandon the usual way of doing things and try out new stuff, new perspective, new activities. And he he somehow thought that that could help resolve this deep tension that he talks about. One other uh, paper I'll mention that I don't think a lot of people know about, Richard Burke wrote a paper, quite neglected paper in ethics called Work and Play, in which he argued that work and play are not actually opposites. And in fact, that the best forms of work involve an element of play and the most rewarding forms of play are such that you need to work at them. I think that's quite deep and insightful and powerful. I don't really agree with his definition of play, but I think that normative thesis that uh, play and work are not opposed to one another and really are best when brought together is, is a very uh, interesting idea. Anyway, that, that's just a sampling of some of the work that's been done on play. There's, there's other stuff, but maybe that gives you an idea. And also some, some sort of idea of kind of why it's a philosophically interesting topic.
1: You said you disagreed with uh, his definition. What was the kind of specific agreements you've had with the work on play in the past that uh, you thought you could contribute to the conversation through challenging?
2: Yeah. For one thing, there just isn't a lot of it. So I thought there were a lot of questions that hadn't been explored very deeply. And I think also a lot of the existing philosophical literature on play is either entirely or largely a priori. And I think it's quite plausible that play is a natural kind. So, uh, you know, it's, Although I said before humans are especially playful, you certainly do find play amongst other animals. Probably all the mammals, some birds, uh, octopuses are quite playful. Uh, so I think a kind of interdisciplinary approach would be an improvement on the kind of methodology you find in a lot of the existing work and I've tried to bring that to my work on play. Uh, you know so evolutionary biology, developmental psychology, particularly given the special role that play has in childhood. But to go more specifically to what I didn't like about Suits' theory, and this problem isn't really unique to Suits. A lot of the kind of most orthodox theories of what play is make what I consider to be the same mistake. So remember, he defined play in terms of autotolicity, in terms of doing something for its own sake. And he adds a few bells and whistles about reallocating resources, which I was talking about before. There's nothing in his definition that implies that when you're playing, you're having fun or enjoying yourself right you can do something for its own sake and not enjoy it so you know if you're a kantian for example and you think respect for the moral law and you know doing the morally right thing is good in and of itself and not for its consequences then you might keep a promise and that might be an autotelic activity for you you might do it for its own sake so it might be something you don't do as a means to some further end and so suppose i like promise my friend to help them move into their new flat and I really don't want to be doing it, it's painful, and I'm missing a concert I wanted to go see. You know, I'm not having a good time. To me, it's really implausible to think of that as play. But if you understand it in terms of this very austere notion of autotilicity, then it might come out as play on a lot of these standard analyses. So I think that that's a big worry about Suits' theory and a lot of other theories that use this notion of autotelicity and don't enrich it with something more kind of phenomenological. So I think it's really important that when we play, we have fun. And I think fun is even more neglected by philosophers than play. And so I have a kind of functionalist theory about fun as pun intended. Um, so I don't know, that's one reason I'm dissatisfied with suits in particular. I also thinking just more broadly, uh, there hasn't been a ton of work on the role of play and playfulness and having a good life. And and like if you look at the literature on well being and welfare, which is a pretty significant uh literature in its own right you you occasionally get like a really brief mention of play like uh, martha nussbaum and john finnis kind of mention it in their theories but very much kind of en passant, just in passing without really developing the idea without explaining what play is and why it's important to to our flourishing or well-being uh and i also i'm kind of excited about this idea that playfulness might be a moral virtue that's gotten almost no attention so far the only person i know of who's explored it is a guy named uh Boomer Trujillo, who's the University of Texas at El Paso, he did his dissertation on that. How great is it, by the way, to work on philosophy of play and have a name like Boomer? Um, (laughs) Yeah. So his view is really interesting. I disagree with pretty much everything he says about play, but it's really engaging and interesting. So uh, in this uh, one of these books I'm writing, I'm going to have a couple of chapters on the idea that playfulness is a moral virtue. And his work is going to be an important foil there. So I also think some of the methodology, in addition to being overly a priori, uh, doesn't carefully distinguish different senses of the word play. So I think philosophy of language and linguistics also should get more of a look in, in this kind of area than it often does. So certain there's certain traditions and scholars that sort of treat play and play a game as if they're interchangeable. And I think that's a big mistake. So I think the word play is what linguists call an ambitransitive. It has both transitive and non-transitive uses. So You can take a variety of direct objects, like you can play a game, you can play the guitar, you can play Hamlet on the stage. Uh, But you can also just play full stop. You know, a kid rolling around in the grass isn't necessarily playing a game. He's just playing or rolling around in the mud or whatever. And there are certain very influential figures who kind of move seamlessly back and forth between the two, as if whenever you're playing a game, you're playing or being playful. And whenever you're playing, you're playing some kind of game. And I just think that's a mistake, and I think more careful attention to language and drawing those distinctions between playing a game, and playing full stop, would improve the debates.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it would be great if your research is kind of looking at, at the nature of play to just really kind of zone in on what 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 you're talking about or or what what people are talking about when when they're specifically looking at the nature of play. I think it's really interesting the the distinction you make between transitive and intransitive uses of of the verb play. So so it would be great if we could just kind of explain what that means. I think you make a, a distinction between, you know, someone playing chess or playing guitar and then playing full stop. I think you mentioned as well that in, in quite a lot of the past research, either this distinction isn't made or it's it's more looking at the nature of play in the, the transitive rather than the intransitive sense.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I, I just think the distinction is usually important. One One philosopher who does mark the distinction is very careful about it, I should say, is Bernard Suits, who uh, I've mentioned several times, his work is great, and he's very careful about it. But the people like uh, Kelloy and Huizinga, and people in this kind of more continental tradition, I think often just don't mark the distinction. Uh, so yeah, I mean, one way of seeing that these are different concepts is to see that neither of them entails the other, you know, obviously, if they were the same concept, they would, everything entails itself, right? So I already mentioned, like playing full stop doesn't entail that you're playing a game. A, a young child's frolicking on a hill or rolling around in the mud just for the sheer joy of it we would describe as playing, but we wouldn't say they were playing a game. Uh, uh, but equally, playing a game uh, doesn't entail playing full stop. You can play a game without being particularly playful. Uh, so uh, actually, Suits makes this point, uh, I think, with the example of a jaded footballer, right? So someone who still plays football, but either does it for the money or for the fame, but just really doesn't enjoy the game. And I recently discovered you don't need to go hypothetical. So Andre Agassi revealed in his autobiography that he, quote, hates tennis with a dark and secret passion and always has. So uh, I think uh, that makes it pretty clear that he wasn't playing full stop in the sense I have in mind. He wasn't being playful when he played tennis, but he was clearly playing tennis, right? He was playing a game. So that one of the transitive uses of play still applied to him, but he wasn't playing full stop. You don't have to go to such sad cases as someone who hates what they're doing. Also, just the seriousness of certain kinds of games. You mentioned Kasparov before. Like, if you imagine a chess player in really intense concentration in an important match, maybe for the world championship, where they're really stressed out because they're worried they're going to make a blunder, their brow is furrowed, they're sweating, you know, they're nervously tapping their feet. This is not an image of a playful person, uh, but Kasparov's still clearly playing chess, so he's playing a game. So I think a number of examples like that make it clear that playing a game doesn't entail playing full stop and neither does playing full stop entail playing a game. So they're distinct concepts. So if you try to just act like there's only one concept instead of two here, you're
1: making a mistake. So could you then unpack the difference in your definitions of the two types of play then? Yeah,
2: so I mean the Kasparov example is to me, very suggestive because I think it helps us see what the standard definitions of playful stop are missing. So, I think a big part of why he, Kasparov isn't being playful in that example is he's just not having any fun, right? The same is true of Agassiz. So, you might think playful stop is just doing something for the fun of it. That would be a nice, simple definition. Uh, but I think it's a little too simple. I think, for example, riding a roller coaster can be fun for people who enjoy that sort of thing. But I don't think we would typically say someone's playing just because they're having fun on a roller coaster. I think that's because it's too passive. You're kind of just sitting in the in the roller coaster, enjoying the experience. You're not doing anything active. Now, it could be if you just imagine the person was, you know, as some people do kind of, you know, raising their arms up in the air and, you know, carrying on and, and acting crazy, then then they may be playing. But if they're just sitting there calmly, but having a good time, smiling and laughing, then I don't think that's play. So I think you need to add that it's a kind of activity. It could be mental activity. We can play with ideas, but it has to be something that involves agency. So it's, done for the fun of it, it involves agency. And I also think it's important that you're not just kind of following some preset script that you're just kind of you know, carrying out almost following an algorithm. So I think play, it's important to our concept of play that it's characteristically unscripted. That's why it has this kind of liberating quality for people. So that in uh, this paper I have in philosophy and phenomenological research entitled Why So Serious, The Nature and Value of Play, that led me to the following definition someone's playing full stop, so this non-transitive sense of play, if and only if they're doing something that is unscripted and they're doing it for the fun of it. Now, since I published that paper, I've kind of, as philosophers, sometimes annoyingly do, I've slightly changed my mind. So I think that definition is close to right, but I've got a a friendly amendment I want to add in future work. So this is not in print yet. But I think a problem for that definition, uh, that I had some things to say about in the paper, but I wasn't totally satisfied with what I said, is that certain forms of play full stop are structured in a way that makes them seem quite scripted. And I wanted to say they're unscripted. Now you can say scriptedness comes in degrees and that they are only scripted to some extent. And so maybe there's unscripted enough to count as play because there's so much fun and that might get weighted more. But anyway, I've revised the definition because I think I can accommodate those cases better. And I think there's a kind of principled basis for doing it. So let me just give me an example. Um, The game Twister, I think, that's not like chess, and that people take it really super seriously. Like the Kasparov example I gave before, people typically play Twister to have some fun.
1: You haven't seen me play Twister, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think my wife would accuse me of being so hyper-competitive that I would, you know, train at Twister. But, but you know, there's not a lot of discretion in Twister, so it's pretty scripted, right? I mean, you you spin the little spinner thing, and then you have to put one of your either one of your hand or feet on the corresponding color. And then there's I guess there's like four colors to choose from, but often someone else's hand or foot is on one of them, or maybe all but one of them. Uh, So you don't have a lot of discretion there. Uh, It's pretty, pretty scripted. So that doesn't seem to fit well with my definition that says that play is by definition unscripted. But I think the Twister example is suggestive again to me because I think when you play Twister, you're still kind of violating certain norms too. Norms about physical proximity to other people, right? So we don't normally kind of, fall all over people in the way that you do when you play Twister. Uh, And so I think sometimes an activity counts as play, even though it's very scripted and that you're following a bunch of rules because you're deliberately violating some other rule, and not just any old rule, a rule that you take to have some kind of authority, maybe not like a really heavy-duty norm like the norm against murder or genocide, maybe just a a low-level norm like the norm about physical proximity to other people. Uh, and I think often play involves kind of very self-consciously, deliberately violating some of these norms. And we find that liberating because they, they often, we find those rules oppressive. They kind of restrict us. And I think we can even find that exhilarating and not just fun. So I've, uh, I think of that as transgressive play as opposed to unscripted play. So I kind of have a more disjunctive definition of play that I want to defend in future work. So I now want to say that a person is playing full stop if and only if they're either doing something that is unscripted for the fun of it or doing something transgressive for the exhilaration of it. And I think that helps with these kinds of structured kinds of play like Twister, because I think there, there's a transgressive element. And then once you think about it, there are lots of examples of transgressive play that show how you can be following a bunch of other rules, maybe following them quite closely and meticulously. It might be very scripted, but you're still deliberately violating some other norm. So in playing a game of chess, there's a saying that a knight on the rim is dim because the knights don't have much influence on the side of the board. So, you know, you might put your knight on the edge of the board and take pleasure in the fact that you're violating this rule of thumb, uh, even though, of course, you're still following the rules of chess. You're still moving the knight in the way the knight is supposed to move, and you're only moving when it's on your turn, and and you're not using your phone to cheat, and so on and so forth. You're still following a bunch of rules, but you're deliberately violating this other rule, and you might... I don't know, you have to be a chess player to appreciate the example, but you might kind of relish, you know, the violation of this norm, particularly if it's a good move, right? It might be kind of um, pleasant to to do it for that reason. Or like Dave Chappelle, uh, he might be following the rules for very good comedic delivery while violating all kinds of social norms for shock value because of the style of humor that he engages in. So that's very roughly my account of play full stop. Uh, I have an account of what it is to play a game, although that's quite a long, complicated story. So I I think the semantics of playing games is also kind of complicated. I think the content of the phrase play a game varies depending on whether you're talking about a multiplayer game or a single player game in an interesting way. And when it comes to multiplayer games, I think what existing theories often leave out is the idea that you undertake a commitment to other people to follow the rules of the game and to try to achieve achieve the goal. Something like a promise. It doesn't have to be an overt verbal promise, but something like that. So I have a theory that's kind of built around that idea that adds some other necessary conditions of what it is to play a uh, multiplayer game. I don't think in a single player game, like when you play solitaire or lots of computer games that you play as a single player game, that you're making a promise to yourself. I think that would be quite strange. So there I have a kind of definition that's a little bit closer to Bernard Suits' account of what it is to play a game, uh, which is more to do with your intentions. But anyway, neither of those notions of playing a game involve fun. Uh, And in fact, whereas being playful typically involves being unscripted, playing games typically involves following certain rules. So in a way, there's a tension between being playful and playing games. In fact, I have a paper uh, in which I explore the tension between those two. Some people have argued they're incompatible, that if you're playing a game, you can't be playful. I think that's too strong. But I have this paper where I draw on some ideas from the Stoic tradition and argue that you can actually engage in really earnest, fairly serious competition in games and still maintain a kind of playfulness. But it's a kind of delicate balancing act, and it involves not being attached to things beyond your control, which, of course, is a classic Stoical idea, in particular, whether you win the game as opposed to whether you play well. Yeah, so that's very roughly how I... Uh, define those different notions of play and play a game.
0: I I think you've explained that for something to count as transgressive, you're kind of breaking a kind of either conscious or unconscious social rule. Would would you say that that covers it?
2: It doesn't have to be social. Typically, it'll be social. It has to be a rule that you take to have some kind of authority over you. Mm -hmm. So it could be maybe a rule that you have given yourself and that you've been bound by. So, I mean, suppose you're one of these people used to be me who obsessively uses their Fitbit. And if they don't get 10,000 steps a day, they go a bit nuts and like they're on holiday and they'll pace the hotel room. This (laughs) might be autobiographical, right? So uh, someone who just is fed up with that and just says, I'm not, it just like throws their Fitbit against the wall and decides not to track their steps. And uh, that might be uh, violating a rule, but it's not a social rule. I'm not under any obligation to anyone else to follow that. It's a rule I've given myself. So it could be, Maybe in that case, you're not being particularly playful, but it just suggests to me that you could be playful by violating a norm that you kind of set yourself as well as one that is imposed by society or that you see as a moral norm even. Uh, But it has to be a norm that in some sense you think has some kind of authority over you. So it's not just something you made up just to break on a whim. That wouldn't seem necessarily... That would be like faux play, like fool's play or fake play or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that also links into... There was a part in your paper that I found interesting where you're talking about play as a graded concept and and I guess if if it depends on on the context that you're looking at um then like the the level of transgression needed or or the level of kind of like moving away from those norms or or violating those norms is has a has a you know there's a different sufficient criteria for that
2: yeah i mean so play is a graded concept in in the sense that the kind of underlying thing that the word play refers to comes in degrees right um, so if to be playful is to do something for the fun of it and it's to be unscripted well fun comes in degrees you can have more or less fun and scriptedness comes in degrees too something can be somewhat scripted almost entirely scripted just a little bit scripted and so this is a graded concept. We have lots of graded concepts that, like this that admit of degrees. So, uh, being tall clearly is a graded concept. You know, we use the predicate tall as a kind of binary concept: either you're tall or you're not. But really, what we have is a kind of continuum, which is to do with height. And so, I think the way graded concepts tend to work in general is that the specific threshold that something has to meet to count as tall, for example, uh, depends on the context of utterance, the context uh, in which you use the word. So if you're talking about a kindergartner uh, and you say, you know, Jimmy is tall, that's going to set the standard at one height. If you're talking about a professional basketball player being tall, the standard will be quite different. I think evaluative concepts are like that. So for example, if I say someone played a good game of chess, my standard for evaluation should be relative to that person's abilities, you know, very different if it's me as opposed to Kasparov. I think the same thing holds for play. So like if you're, talking about a kid being playful there's going to be one kind of threshold set but if you're talking about like a really uptight businessman being playful the threshold might be quite different might be quite lower you know someone might say really that's play oh well that's how he plays Mm. you know Uh, so yeah it is context sensitive and really in a way it would be more useful to talk not about playing full stop but to talk about being playful which kind of reminds us that really this is something that admits of degrees and quite a wide variation in degrees and the transgressive form of play also comes in degrees too. It, it, it's not only graded, it's graded along multiple dimensions, which makes it really interesting. So, you know, you can either, uh, it can be more or less exhilarating and the rule that you, you might break one rule or you might break five rules. Uh, and you might, the rules might have a really kind of heavy duty kind of normative authority, like some sacred norm in your community, or they might be very low level norms, like in the Twister example, and that might seem less transgressive and to that extent, less playful. So yeah, it's kind of complicated because it comes in degrees along multiple different lines, but I think, you know, language and our concepts are are just like that. So we have to live with it.
0: Yeah. And do you say that if you're comparing like a businessman and a toddler playing that that perhaps the businessman has more kind of social norms that, that have authority over them rather than the toddler. And therefore it's it's kind of to to break or to be transgressive in that context is, is different than a, a toddler who has who has less kind of norms like that which have authority over them.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. So uh, one thing I'm interested in exploring more in future work is the idea that transgressive play is especially kind of characteristically human. Which is similar to the contrast you're drawing, because you know a really young child is more like a non-human animal, like a, a mammal, in terms of its cognitive abilities, than a kind of fully competent adult human. And yeah, so it's not just that there are more norms that apply to the business uh, person, but they're they're more conceptually able to recognize those norms or to have beliefs about those norms and to know that they're violating. Now, I think toddlers do recognize certain norms that apply to them. But you're right that there aren't as many. But, you know, they do. Certainly, uh, my son, when he was young, enjoyed violating certain norms. You could tell he got this mischievous grin on his face when he was doing something he knew was naughty, which is a way of uh, being transgressive. And I, I was the same way when I was a child. So certainly toddlers do engage in that. They might take advantage of the opportunity more because they're children. But you might be right that, you know, the older we get, the more norms that we're subjected to. The more opportunities we have, but we also develop more self-control and more, I don't know, society kind of drums it into us that we just don't violate those norms. So it may be that we take less advantage of those opportunities. But I think in a sense, you're right that we have more opportunities because there are more rules that we rightly take to have some kind of authority over us. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It feels like there's also can be quite a fine line between transgressing these norms or rules uh, and it being kind of positive and playful, or you've gone too far and then have caused some kind of hurt or distress. So could you talk a bit more about what makes something fun or what makes it playful rather than just rule breaking?
2: Yeah. So I wouldn't contrast what you're talking about with going too far with fun because it could be deeply evil, but the person doing it could could still really enjoy the hell out of it. You know, it could still be fun. So I think You know, take a a really nasty piece of work, like uh, the Joker from Batman, you know, a really deeply evil villain. I think when he does some of the things that he's depicted as doing in the comics and the films, he is being playful, uh, but it's a kind of dark play. There's a whole literature on what people call dark play. So I think he, uh, you know, he is, as you would put it, going too far. He's doing things that are deeply immoral. But I think that's just a form of transgressive play. So I think play isn't always good. It can be a vehicle for, for great, great evil and it can tempt people into doing things that are evil. I say that even though I, I'm developing this idea that playfulness is a moral virtue. So i, I have to finesse that in some way. Uh, but I think it just depends on whether the rules you're violating are moral rules or whether the rules that you're violating are such that if you break them, you're doing something morally problematic. And, you know, that's just going to depend on the details of the example, I guess.
1: So when he enjoys breaking a social moral norm, he is still being playful. It's just not a good kind of playful.
2: I would say, yes, I would say he's being playful. I mean, we hesitate to say that because playful has this kind of positive aura around it. I think when you call something playful, it's got this kind of glow factor. It sounds like you're praising it. Um, But I think in terms of the descriptive criteria we associate with being playful, the joker is being playful another example is loki you know he's the god of mischief and is usually thought of as a form of play uh now mischief we tend to think of as more low level uh than you know the deeply evil things that uh we associate with say the joker but in fact if you look at norse mythology even though you you know he's called the god of mischief loki does some pretty horrible things like he causes Balder to be killed um as an act of mischief um so yeah, to to for me, those kinds of activities are not just like marginal cases. I think they're paradigmatic forms of play, uh, and it's important that we recognize that and make sure that we don't let our playfulness kind of draw us into, you know, bad behavior.
0: Yeah, I think it's also interesting to think. You know, you're you're comparing toddlers that they're perhaps more similar to non-human animals, and I think it's really interesting to to look at play in other animals as well to, to see what the similarities and differences are there. But I'm wondering whether you think that this, this transgressive type of play, is that something that's limited to humans or is that something that the animals can also engage in?
2: I sent you these slides, which, uh, in which I think on one of them, I said that I thought transgressive play was probably distinctively human. Um, but I think maybe, um, maybe I like overplayed my hand there. Um, uh, no pun intended. Um, uh, so in our previous conversations, you mentioned this example. Uh, I can't remember which one of you, but one of you mentioned this example of a monkey stealing someone's hat, uh, which seems like it might be transgressive and kind of taking pleasure in doing that. I don't know if this was the example you had in mind. I looked this up on YouTube. It was a monkey in Bali who took this woman's hat. Is was that, was that the example you had in mind? Or
1: I've seen quite a lot of videos of monkeys yeah. stealing various possessions <laughs> of, of innocent tourists.
2: It's an interesting example. And certainly it, it could well be that like monkeys, apes, dolphins, maybe even dogs are capable of some low level transgressive play in my sense. So maybe I shouldn't go so far as to say that you have to be uh, you know, a language using rational agent to you know, engage in transgressive play. My reason for thinking that might be the case is to engage in transgressive play. It's not enough that you break a rule. You have to self-consciously break a rule and find it exhilarating because you're breaking a rule. So that means you have to have the concept of a rule. And it's not clear that lots of other non-human animals have the kind of conceptual sophistication to have the concept of a rule. And also not just any rule, right? You have to take it to be a rule that has some kind of authority over you. So you have to have the concept of a rule and the concept of rule having authority over you. I don't know if monkeys, apes, or dolphins have those concepts. Maybe they do in some primitive way, even though they don't have it. Certainly certain philosophers would say without language, you couldn't have concepts like that. But I'm not so sure about that. But, you know, I, in the specific example of the monkey, you know, I guess the norm would be uh, don't steal. Uh, but not now we were getting into even more kind of uh, heavy duty concepts, aren't we? So there's the concept of rule, the concept of rule having authority over the monkey, And the content of the rule, the content of the rule is don't steal. But to have the concept of stealing, you kind of, it's not just possession, it's ownership, right? So uh, to have the concept of stealing, you have to have the concept of private property, uh, which is a conventional concept. Like, Does the monkey know that he's breaking the local norms governing property, the kind of property conventions that David Hume talks about when he talks about justice and property? It seems like a stretch to me. Uh, But maybe there's some other norm that the monkey takes itself to be violating that it takes to have authority over itself. I don't know, but it seems at least unclear to me that monkeys, apes, or dolphins have the kind of conceptual sophistication to believe of themselves that they're breaking a rule that has authority over them and to take pleasure in that. But it is tempting uh, to interpret them in that way sometimes, I admit. I think maybe that's a kind of uh, anthropomorphic kind of vice that we're, we're very prone to.
1: Although I'm not sure some kind of young toddlers, I would give them the kind of credit of knowing they're breaking some of these big social norms in the same oh, way. That's either true so. too. That's
2: true, too. It's possible that I over uh, overinterpreted my son. Uh, uh, but we do know he, but, you know, it is a little different because that, at the point in his development I was thinking of, he ha- did have a reasonable amount of linguistic ability. So there is that important distinction between him and, say, a monkey or an ape or a dolphin where you don't have natural language. Um, that being said, monkeys and apes are super impressive in terms of their intelligence, and maybe in terms of grasping some really basic moral norms. There's these experiments that have been done by Franz de Waal, you can look them up on YouTube, uh, that suggest that uh, monkeys, I think it was and monkeys, have a kind of basic sense of fairness. I, I don't know if you've seen these videos, but they have two monkeys, and each monkey can see the other one. Sadly, they're in these cages. It's not great. They're, they're in these cages, but with a kind of uh, transparent plastic, so they can see each other, and they can see the experimenters. And if they perform some really basic task, like pressing a lever or something, they're given a cucumber, and they can each see that when the other one does that, they get a cucumber. Then they'll, they'll do that like 25 times in a row. They'll happily eat the cucumber. But cucumber is not their preferred food. Like As Franz DeWall says in the video, it's like basically water. So they're not crazy about cucumbers. So the interesting thing happens when the first monkey presses the lever and they give that monkey a grape. They really like grapes a lot more than cucumbers. So uh, the other monkey gets a little excited then. And so it starts pressing the lever like crazy and it, it puts its hand out, like obviously expecting a grape. And they handed a cucumber. And the look of disgust on that monkey's face is absolutely palpable. It like looks at the, the cucumber doesn't eat it even though it's perfectly good calories and would normally have eaten it if, if, if the other monkey had gotten a cucumber as well. Not only does, it, does he not eat it, he throws it at the experimenter and then starts shaking the cage. <laughs> so it's very natural to interpret that as not just anger, but something like resentment or indignation, which is a moral concept, indignation in light of recognizing the unfairness of the way that the, the, the monkey was treated. So, I mean, there is some evidence that monkeys and apes have these concepts of moral norms in a very kind of basic level. So, you know, maybe some other animals engage in transgressive play. But I certainly don't think it's nearly as kind of ubiquitous throughout mammals as play in a a more basic sense. This is kind of the unscripted for the fun of it kind of play. Um, I think it's more rare, but maybe I shouldn't go so far as to say it's that humans have a monopoly on it. Mm -hmm.
0: But I, I guess with the the monkey example, like you say, we're we're looking at that from a human perspective and and thinking, you know, if we were to do something like that, then it would be transgressive rather than from the monkey's point of view. Yeah, no, that's
2: true. It could be even in that case, it could be very much anthropomorphic. Um, I think it's it's less clear in that case what to say, but definitely that's a, a very uh, possible interpretation.
0: Yeah, and and do you think that the the function of play varies between animals and humans as well?
2: Yeah. So, you know, when I first started thinking about how to define play, I was a little tempted by the idea that because it's a natural kind that, you know, obviously evolved with some function because, you know, when you're playing, you could be gathering food or, you know, doing other or just resting and not using energy up. And so it seems like it must have some kind of biological function, particularly given that it's evolved in so many different species. And so you might think the right way to define something like that is in terms of its function, right? So if you think about the concept of, an eye uh, you don't really have the concept of an eye unless you know it's for seeing. that it's con- that it's kind of uh, function is vision and so you might think that's part of the concept of an eye but when I started looking at them and this is the point I made earlier about being more interdisciplinary when I started to look at the empirical literature on play it seemed like there was a whole huge range of functions that play had and then it varied between species so i came to the view ultimately that play is more like a tail than an eye so uh tails also have evolved many times across different species but their function varies between species so in some cases a tail might be for swatting insects like with a cow but in other cases it might be for hanging upside down from a tree as with some primates or it might be for providing balance when jumping like with a cat or it might be for signaling emotions to conspecifics, like with dogs, for example, who wag their tail when they're happy, famously. So tails have lots of different functions, and it would be a mistake to define what it is to be a tail in terms of any one of those functions, because of course, you can have a tail that doesn't have that function, it has some other function, but it's still a tail. So I think play is more like a weird, it's a weird thing to say, but I think play is more like a tail than like an eye in that sense. It has a bunch of different functions. So. One function is I think that it primes you for creativity. Uh, that's because I think the nature of fun is such that it kind of primes you for creativity and trying out new things. And I think that's a pretty widespread one. I think it also helps you prepare for unexpected situations. One of its functions is to help the creature learn to manage their emotions and kind of stressful, unexpected situations that present problems. And it has other other functions as well as kind of social fun, functions that can provide bonding between conspecifics, you know, uh, it can bring people together as well. So it has kind of these pro-social functions. But I guess creativity maybe stands out as one of the more salient functions that play often has.
1: Is that part of the reason why you're wanting to emphasize the kind of difference between animals not having the same concept of play as we do?
2: It's related. Yeah, it's related. It's it, That's more to do with uh, just their not having the kind of conceptual sophistication to engage in transgressive play. But I was thinking of the function of uh, play as being kind of why that disposition to engage in play evolved. And so there's just a variety of different stories, depending on the species you're talking about, about why that disposition to engage in play um, emerged in this species as opposed to that species. There's just a different kind of empirical story about why that was kind of rewarded by Mother Nature, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting. You're you're saying that that actually to come up with the definition of play has taken quite a lot of thought and quite a lot of work to to get to that point. And yet, it feels like play is a is a term that we use a lot in everyday life, and and it feels like we can quite kind of intuitively apply it to different situations. Um, but why why do you think there's that difference between kind of Giving a clear definition of it and everyday use of the word.
2: I mean, yeah, that's a good question, and I think that comes up kind of all over the place in philosophy, right? So, I mean, there's lots of cases where ordinary people tend to converge on cases and classify them in the same way, and yet when you ask them to give a definition, they either put out something that's clearly false. That you can, you know, a first-year philosopher could come up with really compelling counterexamples, or they just are unclear and don't know how to define it. So it comes up with the concept of being morally right. You know, people, there's a lot of convergence, uh, you know, even amongst people who have quite different moral values in some ways. Uh, You know, a lot of basic cases like stealing tends to be wrong, murder tends to be wrong and so on. But if you ask them to define moral rightness, they'll either be at a loss or they'll say something highly controversial and they won't give the same kinds of definitions. You find this with knowledge, right? People used to think knowledge was justified, true belief, but then Gettier came along and suddenly that doesn't work and we're not really sure how to define knowledge. Yet people are pretty good at classifying cases as either knowledge or not being knowledge. The same with moral responsibility. So I think it's a good question in philosophy in general. How is it that a bunch of people can use the same concept and use it in very much the same way uh, and, and tend to agree on a wide range of clear paradigm cases and yet find the, the idea of defining that concept highly elusive? Sometimes it might be because the concept is a very basic concept and it, it's indefinable. That's what G. Moore thought about Uh, the word good. I don't agree with more about that, but some concepts could be like that. Um, But other times, that's not the case. There is a definition, but it's just elusive in this way. So I I think this is a general question for philosophical methodology. So one way of explaining how that's possible is to distinguish know how from know that. And you might like you know how to ride a bicycle or know how to speak Spanish, but you might uh, also know that uh, two plus two equals four or know that Uh, It's raining today or whatever. Uh, Those are two different forms of knowledge. And you might think being a competent user of a word or a competent user of a concept is better understood as know-how than know-that. And as long as your know-how with the use of a word like play tends to track what the correct definition would entail well enough, then you count as being competent with the concept, that is, of having the right kind of know-how to count as having mastery of the concept. You might implement that know-how without knowing that the definition is such and such. As long as you rely on heuristics to determine whether something is play or whether something is knowledge that reliably tracks what the definition would predict, then you've got the requisite know-how, and we would say you have command of the concept. One kind of, I think almost by now, cliche example, you find philosophers talking about the that comes from linguistics is the concept of being grammatical in a given language, like being a grammatical string of words in English. Most people are very, you know, most competent speakers of English, that is, are very, very good at classifying strings of words being either grammatical or ungrammatical. They have enormous convergence. But whatever the definition of is grammatical in English is, it would be incredibly complicated and in Byzantine. And almost certainly, you'd have to be a professional linguist to be able to formulate and understand it. So an ordinary speaker is not going to be able to do that but they still have a very high level of command of the concept of being grammatical because they have the requisite kind of know how. So I think this gap between know how and knowing that the definition of such and such is what explains how you can get this kind of convergence and sameness and content of concept without all the speakers who use that concept being able to spit out what a, a, a kind of correct definition is. At least that's one explanation, right? And then the philosopher needs to tell a story about how that those, the dispositions that make up that know how, make it the case that such and such is the correct definition. And it might be that you have a theory that says whatever the, whatever kind of definition would best explain the platitudes, the competent speakers with this kind of know-how respect and correct each other when they violate and so on. That's a kind of, that's one approach to conceptual analysis It's sometimes called the Canberra plan because uh, philosophers uh, based in Canberra uh, developed it. Frank Jackson most notably, but also Michael Smith, Philip Pettit, um, so that's one way of explaining how there could be that divergence. I guess the other way with play would be that it's a natural kind term. So you might you might kind of um, compare it to other natural kind terms like water. And there's a whole big tradition in philosophy of science and philosophy of language that says uh, you don't learn the real essence of a natural kind like water just through by sitting in your armchair and analyzing concepts. You have to do some hard empirical science to investigate the underlying nature of the phenomenon. And yet people are still pretty good and were pretty good before modern chemistry at kind of classifying things as water or not being water. Uh, and there's a story to be told about that as well. So, you know, you could either explain it in the kind of, uh, know how versus know that way, uh, with kind of traditional conceptual analysis, or you could explain it in terms of what's sometimes called semantic externalism. The idea that the, the, the kind of contents of our concepts go beyond what's in the head. This is an idea that, um, was famously developed by Saul Kripke and uh, Hilary Putnam and other people like that. So uh, that's a maybe a whole long.
0: I'm just thinking as you're talking there. I, I wonder whether what, what you're saying about play here also links into like the ordinary language debate in terms of you know is 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 that where the true definition of words come from or or does it have to be this kind of ideal definition um, that that includes all all the kind of necessary and sufficient conditions for something.
2: Yeah. So I think. You know, you can do traditional conceptual analysis, and we'll, it will take you so far. Uh, and for some concepts, that might be entirely fit for purpose. But if play is a, is a natural kind, you might think you need to combine what you can learn through conceptual analysis with kind of relevant empirical findings. The, the same way to figure out the true essence of water is H2O, you need to do some hard empirical work. So that's why I think looking at some of the empirical literature on play can be helpful for getting at the essence of play in a a way that's kind of more informed in that sense. Well, you originally asked about using ordinary language, and I guess there are contexts when doing kind of certain forms of theoretical work in philosophy around playfulness, where we might not wanna rest just with a kind of loose, and I think you're right, quite vague sense of how playful you have to be to count as playful. So um, one thing I'm working on in this, in one of these books I'm writing is the idea that playfulness is a moral virtue. Now there is a tradition in moral philosophy going under the heading of virtue ethics, which goes back to Aristotle. And the Aristotelian uh, tends to hold that for something to be a virtue, uh, it, it's a mean between two extremes, right? So courage is a mean between a, uh, cowardice on the one hand, which is not being willing enough to stand firm in the face of danger, roughly, and foolhardiness on the other, which is rushing headlong into danger when there's no reason or not enough reason to do so. And the Aristotelian has that kind of Goldilocks, golden bean view of all the virtues. Um, and because of that, the Aristotelian typically endorses what's called the unity of the virtues, so that if you have one virtue, to some extent, you have all of them, right, because you, you're uh, you you to count as so if they were to so if you're to take this approach in the case of playfulness, you would say that the character trait of playfulness, if it's a virtue, can't just be a brute disposition to engage in playful stop. That's gonna allow that, say, the Joker, as I said before, to count as a playful character, which I think from a descriptive point of view of how we use the words is correct in terms of ordinary language. But the Aristotelian might say, well, that's fine. We're not really interested in ordinary language. You can just call this playfulness star. It's a kind of technical concept. And to be playful star is to be disposed to engage in playful stuff in the right circumstances for the right reasons with the right feeling, right? So, you know, the virtuous person will know not to be playful at a funeral uh, as opposed to awake, right? They will not engage in play, forms of play that are hurtful in the way that a bully does, Uh who takes pleasure in humiliating other people. They won't engage in you know, playing pranks that are dangerous, that they might find funny. Uh, but they will use play effectively in contexts in which it can further some morally valuable end. So playfulness, I think, can do a lot for us from a moral point of view. It can um, you know, famously, if there's a you know, a fight about to break out, you can use playfulness to def- like a good a well-timed joke can diffuse social tensions and kind of restore harmony between people. Um, Anyway, I could talk a lot more about the reasons I think of playfulness as a moral virtue, but an Aristotelian might kind of, uh, I think, uh, be excited about the idea that we might need to have a sort of more stipulated concept of playfulness for certain theoretical purposes. Now, I don't actually like that Aristotelian approach to the virtues, uh, but I think that the core of my idea of playfulness as being a moral virtue can be transposed into that framework. And, I, I'm, you know, in this book I'm writing, I have a whole chapter on a kind of Aristotelian version of the idea that playfulness is a moral virtue. But I also have a kind of non-Aristotelian take on it as well, that on that on that take, basically playfulness is such that the joker can be playful. But in the case of the joker, I would say playfulness is not a virtue. So um, it's more that playfulness is characteristically a virtue. Or um, one way of putting it on that view is like if you were designing an ideal human being, playfulness would be one of the ingredients. That doesn't mean that if you have a human being that's defective in some way because they're deeply immoral, that playfulness is going to be a good thing it might be a bad thing as with the joker
1: so you know how you were saying that people would know what they would consider to be playful i think you could probably say that people would assume playfulness was a moral virtue in that sense but they might not be thinking of the kind of joker low-key examples that you've been giving so what would be the easiest way of explaining to them why you still think it is a moral virtue is it the makeup of a human ingredients scenario
2: So, of course, if I went the Aristotelian way, I could just what I would say is that the joker isn't playful, which I think some people might find plausible. Uh, I don't like the Aristotelian framework. I don't like it in general as an approach to the virtues. But that's a long story. But I especially don't like it in the case of play, because I think our clearest paradigm of a playful person is a young child. And young children don't have the kind of moral sophistication to be such that they only engage in play for the right reasons, in the right context, in the right way. That takes a lot of moral maturity that children just don't have. So, and I also think that it can be morally virtuous in children in various ways. So I think that approach to the virtues is overly intellectual in the case of playfulness in particular. And there are other reasons I don't like that framework. So I take a kind of what I call a more Kantian approach to the virtues, although it's only Kantian in a broad sense. It doesn't presuppose the kind of deontological moral framework that Kant has. But Kant In this very striking passage in the opening of the Groundwork of the Metaphysics of Morals, says that the only thing that can be conceived of as good unconditionally, either in the world or indeed beyond it, is a good will. And by good will, he means a commitment to the moral law, commitment to doing the right, morally right thing, come what may. And he thinks everything else that is good is conditional on its being consistent with keeping your good will. So if you have to do something evil, to enjoy some happiness then the happiness has no value whatsoever and he also lists a bunch of kind of character traits right so he lists uh, he says that the coolness of a villain makes him even more villainous even though we think of being cool under pressure as generally being a virtue right you could think of a Uh, courage we often think of as a moral virtue but Kant would say look the courage of say uh, a Nazi that's anachronistic Kant was writing for the Nazis but you know Kantian could say the courage of a Nazi just makes them more dangerous it's not a moral virtue in that case so what I want to say is that for a character trait to be a virtue the person who has that character trait has to have a kind of basic commitment to morality otherwise they don't have any moral virtues like if they're deeply amoral and the way the joker is they're just not the right kind of uh, agent to have moral virtues. Now, Kant, I think, thought that morality was kind of transparent, like it, any rational agent, if they just thought about it a little bit, could always figure out the right thing to do. I don't think morality is as clear as that. Uh, so, I think in addition to that, another condition on having moral virtues must be that you have a kind of basic moral competence. You're at least reasonably good in the way that people who are familiar with conventional morality at figuring out what the morally right thing to do is. So, then I want to say a character trait is a moral virtue if for a person who has that kind of commitment to morality, unlike the Joker, and a kind of basic competence at working out what's morally right, that character trait is a virtue for, for a person like that. If having that character trait would tend to, this is oversimplifying a little bit, but basically would make it easier for them to do the right thing, would help them, would be an asset in their effort to act morally rightly, to have a good will. And then I argued that playfulness does that for a whole bunch of different reasons. I mean, one reason, is uh, also a reason that it's prudentially valuable, which is that it fosters creativity. There's a whole bunch of empirical literature showing that playful people are more creative. Uh, and I think often in morally difficult circumstances, we need to find creative solutions. And one nice example I talked about in the chapter on this, mayor of Bogota at one point, Antonis Mokas, he is very playful and uh, he actually ran for office in a kind of super citizen suit, which was very playful. Um, but he he deployed his playfulness to good effect in ways that I think were morally virtuous. So there were terrible traffic problems in Bogota, Colombia. And he replaced a bunch of the traffic cops with mimes, traffic mimes. And they would go out and kind of mock people when they violated traffic laws. And apparently this led to a change in the culture, uh, the traffic culture of Bogota, reduced accidents, reduced fatalities. So that was a very outside the box and very playful kind of idea. You can see how it just intuitively, it's quite playful to have, you know, hundreds of mimes across the streets of Bogota mocking uh, both pedestrians and drivers for violating uh, traffic norms. So that's one way in which I think it helps you with regard to moral virtue. It also brings people together, which I mentioned before, you know, it can function as a, a way of enhancing solidarity. John Cleese, there's this great quote from John Cleese where he talks about how it's kind of impossible to look down on someone or to have any kind of social hierarchy with someone in your company when you're all howling with laughter. It kind of brings you together. It's very egalitarian in that way. I think I mentioned before that it helps de-escalate conflicts. A well-timed joke is a very playful thing Can prevent people from saying things that they very much regret later, and, you know, uh, destroy relationships. There's also some really interesting empirical literature that suggests that playful people have high levels of what uh, people in psychology call ambiguity tolerance. I think really it's a bad label. They should call it like relishing ambiguity. People who are playful, and maybe this isn't surprising, like people who are playful tend to like games. I mean, I know I've argued earlier in this podcast that uh, the two could come apart, but typically people who are playful like games and games often involve puzzles, things that are unclear and take a bit of decoding. That's very different from people who don't like things that are unclear or ambiguous. People who are intolerant of ambiguity, tend to be, well, intolerant in ways that are morally problematic. So one good example of this I talk about in Work in Progress is transgender people. They produces a kind of ambiguity that's people who are tend to be bigoted towards the transgender or at least have some tendency to discriminate against them, they find that kind of ambiguity threatening or difficult to deal with. And so the fact that playful people are more kind of tolerant of ambiguity and things that are unclear in that way Uh, plausibly makes them more tolerant in ways that are morally virtuous. Also, just thinking in absolutes generally, quite apart from the case of discrimination, I think, is morally a good thing. And uh, being playful helps you keep perspective, right? I mean, I think if you're a playful person, when someone makes a kind of snide comment or engages in some kind of microaggression, instead of like brooding over it and becoming resentful and eventually becoming a, a more cynical or jaded person or a bitter person, which is not a way to be a morally good person, you just kind of laugh it off and you see them as ridiculous or absurd instead of getting all upset about it in that way. Um, yeah. Oh, and playfulness can also help uh, help critique oppressive social forces, kind of truth to power stuff. So, you know, sometimes playful critique is much more effective than direct rational argument. You know, you see this with good political cartoons. Like there was a good political cartoon during the whole party gate scandal with Boris Johnson of him, you know, clearly at a party with a party hat on uh, drinking some wine and saying, I don't know, I'm at a party. I think that's very playful, but it makes a point. There's Charlie Chaplin in the film, The Great Dictator and so on. So in all these ways, I think playfulness helps people with regard to morality. But if you don't have that baseline commitment to morality in the way that, say, the Joker doesn't, then it's not going to be a moral virtue. But for someone who is committed to being morally decent, it, I think on balance enhances your ability to do well by morality, to be playful
1: And so would you say, then, that uh, toddlers and young children don't have that base moral competence, and so for them, playfulness is just a trait, but not a moral virtue?
2: Well, these things come in degrees, don't they? So, I mean, it's not like a kid wakes up one day and suddenly, you know, they can recite the categorical imperative and explain its rational authority. It's a a very gradual kind of process, so there are going to be lots of kind of unclear cases. But certainly, if you go back far enough, I think very young children we would recognize as engaging in play, like even infants i think play but they don't really have seem to have moral concepts yet so yeah i would say there's a, a gradual process by which children acquire moral concepts and eventually they get to a point where i think before they reach full adulthood uh certainly where they get to a point at which they can have moral virtues uh, if things go well and i think their playfulness can be channeled and molded in a way that enhances their ability to to be
1: morally decent uh, it may not always
2: work that way but it has that potential
1: So as long as we have our base moral competence, we should aspire to playfulness, you reckon?
2: Yeah, I think playfulness uh, will tend to point you in the right direction as long as you've got a basic commitment to morality. And that involves having some of the other virtues as well, which will help inform the way that you deploy it, ideally. I mean, clearly, playfulness without any of the other virtues uh, maybe wouldn't be so good. But people who have that kind of basic moral competence I talked about will tend to have some of the other virtues to some extent.
1: After doing all this work on playfulness, have you found yourself becoming more playful? Have you been actively trying to be more playful in your day-to-day life?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I tend to think of myself as a fairly playful person in general, but I can be overly serious about things, too. As I said before, I have a tendency to be very competitive. So, yeah, I mean, I wrote this paper I mentioned before about stoicism, uh, which my wife and son think uh, is pretty hilarious because I'm not the most stoical person you would ever meet. So there's definitely, like, a theory... Practice gap there for me. So one thing I have been working on, I won't I won't speculate as to how successful I've been because I'm probably not the best judge. Is uh, so like I play chess. I, I'm a pretty keen chess player. I'm not very good, but I like to play. And uh, uh, you know I, I can I can take it on the chin pretty hard if I make a blunder. And I'm trying to be uh, a little less attached to things in that sense and to have a more stoical perspective, which I think. Um, is connected to some of my ideas about playfulness so it's not exactly being more playful but being it's kind of connected it's so i get this idea that cultivating kind of stoical attitude allows you to remain playful when engaging in really serious competition so that's an area where I, i'm looking for some self-improvement possibly uh i think i'm already a pretty playful person in general so i don't know yeah probably not much more playful but maybe a deeper appreciation of why what you know what playfulness is and why it's
1: valuable sounds good i think i also get a bit too annoyed when i lose at chess so that i might take that advice to heart as well um i think that feels like quite a nice place to uh round up so uh we'd just like to thank you a lot for coming on the podcast and going through your notions of play with us and hope you've enjoyed the interview
2: yeah no, i did very much thank you guys i enjoyed that
1: Thank you for listening. You can find our episodes on all good podcast hosting platforms and can check out our website for all of our social media links and host information at www.thoughtsuofg.com.